going on, everybody? My name is Gerardo Munoz. I am your 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year. I am your critical conscience. I am your philosopher king, bringing you some illiteracy, ill behavior, illegitimacy, and ill-advised actions in the name of social justice. You are listening to Habitually Disruptive, where we talk about ways to question, interrogate, and reshape the world around us. Um, if you are a new listener, and maybe after this episode, we will have more listeners, new subscribers, you can follow the content of our production company, Two Dope Productions, at Two Dope Teachers on Twitter. I was going to say on the internet. <laughs> on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on TikTok, but we don't post anything um, because TikTok is a little... Seems like a lot of work. I was just telling my guests that I, I don't like things that seem like a lot of work. Uh, you can also email us with show ideas to reach out, gift cards, etc. teachers at gmail.com. And if you really like the content that you are receiving from Tudop Productions, not just Habitually Disruptive, but also the flagship podcast, Tudop Teachers and a Mic, as well as the exit interview with Dr. Asia Lyons, you can go to patreon.com slash teachers. Uh, for as little as $5 a month, you can support grassroots people of color created media out here in these internet streets. All right, folks, you may or may not know this. You don't know this, obviously, because I'm just recording it and you're hearing it for the first time. Um, I just came back from a trip to the Pacific Northwest where my father lives and where he's battling um, illness and other things that come with being a brown man in America. And um, this episode is one that I think I've been trying to do for a really long time. Um, and the perfect person to come on with me today is the homeboy, the guy. He is that dude. He is the 2021 Virginia Teacher of the Year. He is the nicest person in our cohort where I might actually be the meanest. And his name is Anthony Swan. Anthony, what's up, brother? What's good, G? It's Anthony Swan. So, Anthony, me and you met on the internet because it was a pandemic. We met on a Zoom. And um, and real like right away, I found you as a person who's bringing similar energy as me. You wanted to confront issues of race, power and privilege um, as it faces us teachers. And um, and ever since then, man, kindred soul. So welcome to the show. Good to be on here. Finally. Finally, we've been trying to make this happen for a really long time. Mostly my fault uh, when things don't happen. It's generally my fault. Um, because I can't make things work. My computer is in full rebellion today. Um, and for a minute, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen, but we are good at the moment. And that's why we're recording to the cloud. So, um, so Anthony, you and I have had some conversations over the last year or so that, that I think have been really illuminating for me and really useless to me, useless, useful to me when I say useless. It's been a long day. You said it was Monday before we got on here, and I'm agreeing with you. Um, you know, a lot of those sort of center on growing up in a difficult environment where where things were often very, very challenging. You've been really transparent about your story. Um, since we met as teachers, let's talk a little bit first just about 
who you are, what you've done, and what school meant to you growing up, what it means to you now. Um, absolutely. So um, I'm just, I like to say I'm just a teacher, but I know now that I'm more than just that. Um, I've always loved school and kind of fell in love with it once I was um, placed into the system at a young age. And so school became like my safety net. It helped mm -hmm. me to escape. Um, I had an alcoholic and a drug addicted mother and my father has always been absent. And um, I mean, do you want me to go into telling everything like? Yeah, we can sort of talk a little bit about it because I think a little bit of that and, you know, it's whatever you're comfortable sort of sharing with our yeah. audience. So um, when I was nine, I was abruptly uh, taken into the foster care system in front of my class in fourth grade. Um, and that left me in a place of devastation. And I began to have suicidal thoughts. You know, I was having those thoughts of like, what's wrong with me? How come my parents don't want me? So I was taken to emergency foster care and stayed in the system until I was 21 years old. Um, and so when I got in the system, like my life just changed drastically. Like I I started not caring. Uh, my grades started slipping. I was getting suspended from school off the bus. I just like was like, no one cares about me. So why, why should I care? Yeah. And so um, but when I was taken from my fourth grade teacher, she tried to talk to social services, but they would not tell her anything. So she bent down and she whispered in my ear that everything was going to be all right. And from there, we lost touch, but years later, about four years later, she ended up finding me when I was in the system. Um, and um, I was able to actually sit down with her. Her name is Ms. Ms. Joretta Wilson. And she told me how when they took me, she would search for me and she would drive around the city. and. She would just stop and ask people that they know me, that they know my siblings until she finally found me. And so when she found me, she just had this conversation with me. She told me to grab hold of all my anger, my bitterness and my hatred and to put that into making something of myself. And by that time, I was already playing school because school was like a safe place for me. Yeah. When I played school, I didn't have to think about the hours in the system. I didn't have to mm -hmm. think about that. You know, I didn't have parents. And so I told her that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and her first response was like, for what? We don't make any money. <laughs> right. So um, then she retracted. She was like, if that's what you really want to become, I'll help you. And she just she planted that seed. I was in eighth grade. then. she planted that seed. And from there. I stopped getting suspended and I started picking my grades up and putting all of my anger and bitterness into my studies. And um, by the end of eighth grade, I had the highest grade point average. And um, I had learned how to advocate for myself in high school because I was still in the system. And so um, my senior year, I just went to the guidance counselor's office every single day and I filled out scholarships and wrote essays. Um, and so I was the second person in my class that had the most scholarships. So I put myself through um, through college and 
Miss Wilson was right there to push me along the way. But my senior year of college, my mom died um, out of the blue from a massive brain aneurysm. Um, and I remember looking at my older sister and, was, and I just told her that I quit because I felt like everybody I loved ended up dropping me or, or leaving me of some sort. And she contacted my fourth grade teacher and my fourth grade teacher called me and I was able to pour my heart out and um, just cry and just let her know where I was. And she was like, Anthony, what do you need? And I said, Miss Wilson, um, this is my senior year of college. I'm supposed to start student teaching. I don't have a car. I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, she picked me up every single day and took me to my student teaching placement Goodness. before she went to school herself. And um, once I graduated from college, um, I, I started my career at the same elementary school I was taken from. And I was teaching third grade and Ms. Wilson was still teaching fourth grade. So it's kind of like a full circle thing, like education. Um, it was a teacher who saved my life. And when they say great teachers change lives, that's what happened to me, you know, besides my faith in God, um, it was a teacher who actually saved my life. I think that that's the part of your story that just gives me chills, Anthony. And there's going to be some other things that I get into for a second, but I think we're in a time, especially, you know, you and I have dear friends who have walked away from the teaching profession. Um, and maybe I'm, I guess I'm one of them. Um, and I think it's easy for a lot of of us in the in these difficult times um when we're being stretched when we're being attacked when we're being overloaded with things and i think your locality uh probably sees more of that than mine does um that there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity to convince yourself that what i do doesn't matter like mm -hmm. what i do doesn't reverse cycles of poverty and cycles of violence and cycles of oppression I'm one teacher. What could I possibly do? And this is a story that really shines light on the way that one teacher can completely alter a person's um, trajectory. Um, and I've enjoyed seeing the pictures you've posted with Miss Wilson. Um, I think that's just the most beautiful thing ever because you're always, you, you take her name into every room that you enter. And I think it's really beautiful. Um, the second thing I kind of want to, um, I want to, you know, we can touch on it now and then circle back to it when we get into the meat of the conversation. But, you know, when I first learned your story, I was dumbfounded, like, because you come across with so much joy and so much love and you you just have protected that in your life, even though you have every reason to walk around with a chip on your shoulder, to walk around angrily, aggressively, resentful, and you don't choose that. And I think that's kind of an amazing thing. Um, I think the last thing I want to touch on is, you know, Ms. Wilson's warning to you that teachers don't make money. Folks, if you've ever seen Anthony on social media, this gentlemen <laughs> keeps some clothes i want to be like you when i grow Ooh. up into my fashion <laughs> i have help <laughs> <laughs> you make this look good it's okay to have help <laughs> 
It's a beautiful thing. Um, but let's let's kind of talk about this a little bit. It you know, um, there are definitely differences in our stories. Like I think um I grew up in a household where both of my parents were present. They did the best that they could. You know, we were somewhere between working class and middle class. It sort of depended on what kind of year we had. Um, got my younger sister who I just saw out in the Seattle area over the weekend. And, um, you know, home was home for me. And so I didn't find school to be the same safe place that you did. And so your story has caused me to reflect a little bit on the totality of my school experience and sort of thinking about that. But you have run into these um, into these challenges. How is it that you're able to re- recover and protect your joy? Because because I've seen you upset and I've seen you frustrated, um, but you always come back to to just being you and being your same joyful stuff. What is it that? helps you recover and protect that joy? Um, That's a very good question. And I would, it would have to be the fact that I know that there's people counting on me. Like, um, just like I look to Miss Wilson for hope, even without her even knowing, she was my hope. And I know that there are children, there are adults that look to me the same way. And so whenever I'm having a difficult moment, I just push through it because I know that I am genuinely someone's hope. Like they're looking at me saying, if he can do it, I can do it. And so if I crumble and if I just quit, it's going to make those people who are not strong enough feel like that they can't make it. And then they'll crumble and quit. And because it's kind of like paying it forward. Ms. Wilson did that for me. And so yeah. I know that I have to do that for other people. And so that's what helps me to push through those hard times. Yeah. And two, um, I had to develop tough skin as a, as a child because I went through so much, you know, with my parents and with my siblings. And so now when things happen as an adult, I'm like, okay, I'll get <laughs> over it. I I mean, I've been through worse. Like I just have this mentality, like, okay, it happened for a reason is right. What didn't kill me only makes me stronger. And so I had to survive. And so sometimes I switch into survival mode, like, okay, you got to push through this hard moment. Um, And, and that's what helps me to make it through those tough times. Yeah. Uh, it's obvious. And and sometimes I get frustrated with you because like I go through my own little like tribulations and my own sort of like anger. Like I like even when I'm quiet, you know, this like some part of my yeah. head's always yelling. Right. Yeah. And and then I'll like think about you and the path you've been on and I'll be like, OK, OK. <laughs> All right. I'll try. Yeah, I'll try because I th- I think that, you know, I think that obviously I had some challenges in my childhood, but nothing like what you went through. And, you know, it does, um, you know, it does give me if you're you're an argument against myself <laughs> in a lot of ways oh. <laughs> in, in, in the best way possible, because I think that um, I think that watching your example over these last now couple of years that we've known each other has really uh, been really meaningful. Um so one of the topics that we've we've touched on a lot, and I think 
this is a topic that's impacted both of us as adult men is our relationships to our fathers. Mm. And, um, you know, th this is this man, this is such a hard topic for me because I think, you know, I'm in the middle of processing things with my dad. Um, we didn't have similar experiences with our dads growing up. Um, but I think let's, let's start with kind of how you came to be more or less in community with your father. So he wasn't around growing up. Right. And, right. but he has, as I understand it, made it, made his way into your life at different points. Mm -hmm. How has that kind of unfolded and how do oh. you process that? Also, if you're like, not today, man, it's a Monday. <laughs> no, it, it needs to be talked about. So I've always known who, who my father was and is. Um, but ever since I met him, and I, the first time I remember meeting him was when I was seven. And ever since I have met him, it's always been, he always denies that I'm his. Oh, and so, wow. um, and so I got a blood test when I was 14, um, my brother and myself, and we were 99.99% his. And so still, even after the blood test is like, he, he just denies me. And so I have tried to like open up to him. I've tried to get to know his side and try to ask him questions like, why did you leave me? Like, I tried to have those conversations, yeah. but every single time he would not take accountability. He would always say, well, your mama, well, your mama. And, and so I just stopped trying. And yeah. um, we, like all of my siblings, like even my oldest brother has tried with my father. He's lived with my father. I am the only one out of his seven children that has never lived with him. Wow. I am the only one. And so I have no, I have no memories. Like, yeah, I, I don't have anything where I can say, I remember when I remember this, I remember that. And so that bothers me. And so when I'm acknowledging him, I would acknowledge him and I'll honor him. Uh, but three years ago, he called me and, um, just to give some context, I had posted a picture. It was him and my aunt are twins. And so I posted a picture. And I was like, I would like to say happy birthday to my aunt and to my biological father. And so he, and he posted underneath it, like, um, biological father, question mark, I need a blood test or something. And this was on social media. Yes. This was on social media. Wow. So, <laughs> so then he picks up the phone and calls me and he's like, um, I don't think you're my son. Like this is this three like, years ago. This was three years ago. He's like, I don't think you're my son. I feel like you're not mine because you don't treat me like I'm your father. And he's going off. And I'm like, dude, like, and at the time I was 35. Blames like, you, Bl blaming you. Exactly. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm 35 years old and all I want is a relationship with my father and I can never have it. And I, I did break down. And I did cry because it was just heartbreaking. Like you still calling me 
and I'm in, in my 30s and you still are saying that I'm not yours. So finally. But on the I other have, hand, arguing that if he was yours, you would treat him that way, but you maybe would treat him that way if he acknowledged that he you were his. Yeah. And so, right. <laughs> and so I, I always like in the back of my mind, when my mom died, I learned one major lesson. We don't get to pick and choose our parents. Yeah. And so I regretted the fact of not acknowledging the that she did try the best she could. That's yeah. that's the that's what that's all she knew. Yeah. Like she had no one to advocate for her, no one to push her to be a great mother. And so she did the best she, she could until she couldn't do anyone else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so with my father you know, like, like a few months ago, like he was actually on a ventilator, but instead of me, instead of me being nasty and not going, I actually went and I was by his side, you know, until he was able to get better. But at the same time, I have a boundary, like, because you have, you have blatantly told me I'm not yours. You don't think I'm yours. And so I have a boundary. And so there's only but so far that I'm going to go anymore because every single time I try, I always end up being crushed. And so now I have this boundary and I'm like, I don't call him. I don't text him unless I'm, unless I like blatantly, like if it's on me to do that. Yeah. And that's the only time I talk to him. But other than that, I'm the only child that he has that will not reach out to him as often because I feel like you told me that I'm not your child. Okay, I'm going to help you. You don't have to worry about me. But he likes to take the credit for like all of the accolades. So I've been around, he like, this my son. You know, he, you know, he's a state teacher of the year. And I just, and I don't say anything because I want to honor him and I don't want to disrespect him, Sure, but I know my journey. And so um, sometimes it can be very hard and I can, I can clash with some of my other siblings because they're like, you need to call him. You need to talk to him. And I'm like, no, I don't. Yeah. Because they've got a different frame of reference and a different perspective on, on what he means to them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This this is this is wild to me that he still hasn't acknowledged that he's your father, except for when it's kind of convenient. Um, our, our stories are slightly different. My dad was there uh, the whole time, came here from Mexico in 1974. And, um, you know, married my mom, uh, who's from here. And uh, so I was born a couple of years into their marriage. And um, and my, my dad, you know, it's interesting. Um, my, my dad is a fighter. Like he's always been a fighter. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, I've, I've always said that if I've ever had any fight in me, it's, it's because of my dad, like my dad in a very real way, the kind of poverty that he crawled out of in Mexico city um, is the kind of poverty nobody gets out of. Like there's, there's a version of his story where I'm like, you know, he shouldn't even be here. Like now approaching 70, still fighting. And he, and, you know, he fights everyone. He fights his doctors. He fights the people trying to take care of him. Mm. Um, you know, and, 
he always claimed to have education. I don't know that he has any formal education. And I think one of the difficulties with my dad is that there's probably, we're probably never going to actually know what he went through as a kid. Uh, he was undersized when he was born. They used to be able to fit him in a shoebox when he was a baby. Wow. And um, his nickname was Raton, which means mouse, um, because he's so small. And um, he has had health challenges. But, you know, he and my mom split up when, uh, you know, the week I was graduating from college. And um, it kind of gave us a schism, but we had always had a little bit of tension, especially as I started to advance in my education and advance in the things that we were do that I was doing. Um, I felt like he struggled to feel relevant, you know, and I probably wasn't super helpful because immature, full of anger, um, not really um, paying a whole lot of attention to, to him. But, you know, my friend, uh, Marilyn, um, has said that all parents do harm, you know, it's because parents aren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. Right. And there's always kind of parental harm that happens no matter who you are, but it sounds a little bit like as I've struggled to maintain this relationship with my dad, um, it sounds like something that they both kind of have in common is this sort of how they deal with the distance kind of between us. And you said something that I've been working on in my head for about a year. Um, you said you love your father from a distance. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and how that is a source of peace for you and not a source of resentment or bitterness? Um, absolutely. That's a very good question. So when I say I love him from a distance, it means that I acknowledge his I acknowledge who he is. Um, if I see him, we'll speak. We'll have candid conversation. I'll respect him. Um, however, as very often, no, because he lives in Maryland, and okay. I don't go visit him quite often. So, yeah. um, and so, if we if we are in the same room, um, I'll, we'll have conversation. But there's only but. I'm only going to allow him to get, but so close to me, like, don't ask me any personal questions. Don't ask me, don't ask me different things. Cause I'm not going to tell you because I don't trust you. Um, and so I had to, I had to create that boundary when he called me three years ago and said, I'm not your son. I had to create that boundary because I was longing to have a relationship with him and I just had to realize it is never going to happen. And I had to accept that. And so what, what he's actually done for me is he has sparked my fire in education even the more because I want to give children everything that I need it. I want to be to them everything that I needed my father to be to me. And so although it may be like a hurtful situation or it may be a situation in which like I feel dogged or I feel crushed, it has actually sparked a fire in me even the more. So if I get discouraged, I have to keep going. I have to stick within the education room because there are so many children 
who have the same story as I do, but I'm able to say, let me tell you something. Let me tell you about me. Let me tell you that I know exactly where you're at and know exactly what you're experiencing and know the feelings that you have because I still deal with it. You know, I have, I have two students in particular that I can think of that I've had conversations with them. And when you, when I peel back the layer on what their behaviors are, it's because they're missing their father. And we, they, they have sat in my office and cried and I have just held them and cried with them, two male students. And one student told me, he was like, you remind me so much of my father. He's no longer in my home, but you remind me of him. And every day he's like, I need to see you. And so I make it my duty to make sure that I go see him or I peek in on him to just to give him that hope. And so I have to keep that distance with my biological father so that I won't be crushed anymore. Yeah. Just letting that sink in, man. That's um, it's just so deep. And just that, that, that's that spiritual strength you have to, like you said, pay it forward and invest that energy in a good way into other kids. I just think that's really powerful. One thing that kind of um, occurs to me is that neither of us can really say we've had a normal relationship with our father, right? Yeah. And there's times that it gets, you know, it it makes me it hurts a little bit when, you know, I see other friends of mine who, you know, around my age, Kev, who, who does two dope teachers with me, Kev and his dad are extremely close. And, um, and, and I love Bula Adams. He's phenomenal. And, um, and it's just really interesting because you see, you see guys our age who still have an older guy, you know, who they chop it up with and they hang out with and it, it's just normal. It's just the thing. And I know that no relationship is like normal, right? Mm -hmm. I know that every kid has issues with their parent, (laughs) you know, whether they're bigger or deep ones. And that's one thing that I think is really difficult. The other difficult impact that it had on me was that, um, was that my sense, you know, and for things I won't go too much into depth with my, my dad had a certain type of toxic masculinity, um, around expectations on how I would be, how many girls I would be with, like all this other kind of stuff when I was yeah. younger. I really, it, it was really frustrating in terms of how I started to define manhood <coughs> and what it, what it meant to be a man. And that's been definitely a struggle. It, it, did you find yourself having to confront these ideas of, of manhood with an absent father who, even when he was around, he denied you. Yes. I still deal with that to this day. Like, especially since I just got married last year. Yeah. Shout out Jasmine. <laughs> there, there are a lot of questions that I have and I have had, um, because a father, you know, a son needs his father to guide him in certain aspects and certain areas. And so um, I find myself having to 
just lean on people. Like I've asked you questions or, you know, just, just different people that I trust and I'm close to, Yeah. but in the back of my head, I'm like, I wouldn't have to deal with this if I had a father, right. you know, or if I see, if I, ha- if I see my friends doing things with their sons in my mind, I'm like, dude, your son don't know how blessed he is because I long for that. Even at this age, I long for that. Like that is one of the greatest things that I wish that I have, even being an adult. And so um, I just have to, once again, push through those things and kind of figure it out on my own. I've made mistakes trying to figure it out on my own, but in, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, you know, I just got to do it. I just got to figure it out or, or lean on somebody else's knowledge. That's not my father. Thankfully, let me tell you how great of an impact education is. So I taught this one student um, 16 years ago. He was in one of my first (laughs) classes. He is now 22 years old, but his parents have kind of taken me underneath uh, their wings. So like I oh, taught him wow. in first and in third grade, but his parents literally treats, they treat me like I'm there. I like I'm theirs. Like wow. I go on vacations with them when the pandemic first hit and I wasn't married. Like his, his father called me and he was like, Mr. Swan, I don't want you staying by yourself. I need you to come home, pack a bag and you're going to stay with us. And so I went and I lived with them rent free for like three months just yep. because he did not want me to be by myself. So he's taken me underneath his wings. Um, and so I I, list, I lean on him and I lean on his guidance. And this was a former parent wow. of a student. And so he was my student, but now he's like my younger brother. And wow. we we are. You know, I was just with them last weekend. Yeah. But we we have that type of relationship now. And so I have to lean on people like that to help me um, just to figure out the masculinity part. And, you know, those questions that a son supposed to ask his father, I have to lean on people for that. Yeah, that's that's deep that, you know, and, and I think having a supportive I mean, black and brown folks weren't ever meant to be individualists. We were meant to be in community. That's how our cultures have always been. Mm-hmm. No matter where we come from, the globe, you know, the global South, the global majority, we definitely operate based on community. And it makes me think of like professors that I had in college who I really leaned on, who really kind of stepped into the gap. And uh, my stepdad has been phenomenal as, as a presence of my life. Um, and you know, and it makes me think a little bit like the way you talk about paying it forward. I don't know how much you follow the NBA. You know, I love the NBA. Yeah. Um, but one of my favorite stories was from Allen Iverson and his relationship with Larry Brown when when AI was in at, at uh, Georgetown and then came in to the NBA. Um, he and uh, he and Larry Brown in Philadelphia had a really tight relationship, and they asked Iverson's mother about that relationship you know here's alan iverson a 20 year old you know from the streets who you know got had got himself into some legal trouble had a lot of anger didn't have a father in his life and larry brown this like 60 plus year old white dude (laughs) you know uh from the midwest and what she said to the reporter was 
every young man needs an old man. Like it isn't even necessarily just as a father, but every young man needs to have an old man in his life who he can sort of observe and ask questions to who's kind of been in those places. And it sounds like you've found, I mean, this is, this is why school can be such a sacred place, even though, even though there are some harmful things that have happened to people of color in schools and poor mm -hmm. people in schools, it can also be really sacred because the type of support and community and bonds that are forged there, really hard to find anywhere else. You totally know? agree. It's so interesting. Um, so as I think about my dad, and it's interesting because I think that I imagine that our stories would be really similar. They're actually really different, but in the sense that we've had to negotiate difficulties with this person in our lives who we call father, right? right. Um, I feel like when, when you commented on how people you see, you don't know how blessed you are to have a dad who wants to be around. That's my dad. My dad wants to be around me. He doesn't always behave in ways that are helpful or kind or from a, from a loving place. Um, but trying to understand how that distance works, um, is really important. That was my takeaway from being with him this weekend was like, he just wants to be around. Um, mm -hmm. and the difficulty is like, yes, it comes at a cost and how I negotiate that cost is going to be between me and my friends and my therapist, <laughs> um, and how yeah. we can do that. But, um, you, um, you're, you're interested in becoming a father yourself, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I only I mean, ask I, this because we've talked about it. <laughs> yes. I want children. Um, yeah. But I know that it'll, it will happen whenever it's supposed to happen. And, right. and until it happens, I'm going to be content with the 520 children that I, I serve <laughs> yeah. in my school. And um, I'm just going to be content and and love on those children until I'm blessed to have my own. It sounds like too what you'll be doing when that happens. And I think, I think you're meant to be a father. You will be an amazing father. Um, what's meant to happen is the breaking of cycles, right? right? Like that, that your children, when they come along, won't have to endure what you had to endure. No, nope. um, I'm determined to not be, <laughs> the same man as my father was like, that was like my goal. Like I do not want to be, I don't want to be like him at all. Like yeah. not one, I will probably say the, the greatest feature that's positive that I do get from my father is that he is a hard worker. Yeah. So he, he is a hard worker and that is one of the greatest features that I do get from him. So I, I don't take that for granted at all. Yeah. And, um, it's so always so hard for me to admit because like some of my favorite qualities about myself, I got from my dad and it's like, yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think, I mean, it does come down to how we humanize people that obviously nobody's perfect. And on the other end of it, nobody is completely flawed and worthless. Right. Correct. Like, everybody brings something. And, um, you know, I think a lot, I think, and I think my dad started to break the cycles he was, of course, he'll, he'll tell you that there was no trauma. He never went through anything bad and he doesn't need therapy and doesn't need wellness and doesn't need all these things. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but what he sacrificed, um, so that my sister and I wouldn't have to deal with what he dealt with is meaningful. 
now I'm going to, now I've had to make sure my, my daughter is a senior in high school now. And, um, I have to make sure I, I really try to commit myself to making sure that she wouldn't have to endure the things that I had to go through because things were hard for us as kids. And, you know, maybe that's a type of cycle breaking as well. Um, it is. um, Yeah. Um, what does healing mean to you? What does healing mean to me? Oh. You know, sometimes people think healing is easy. It's not. Like, no, it's it's not. So being able to be healed means everything um, because I have always been wounded. And if not wounded, someone always ends up opening up the scab. And so I end up bleeding again, if I can use that analogy. Yeah. And so um, healing does not take place over time. And I think you hit on something within the black and brown community. Society will portray that you shouldn't have to talk to a therapist or a counselor but those professionals are needed to bring healing, to bring closure. And professionals who look like us. Yes. I mean, that's one of the things that is missing. We do need black and brown mental health professionals because they will be able to speak to the things that our people have gone through in this country in ways that, you know, there's some great white therapists out there. I'm not going to, you know, downplay what they do, but, but to have somebody who understands what you've experienced. I think that's critical. Yes. It, it really is because it lets you know you're not by yourself. Um, my ther- my counselor is a black woman and um, she, she keeps me accountable. Like she pushes me to grow. She pushes me to open up. She pushes me to talk about those things so that I can heal because a lot of times in, in our society, in our community, um, we are, it is portrayed that you don't talk about these things. Yeah. Like if it happened to you, just keep it in the back of your head. Don't yeah. reopen up the, the can of worms, but in all actuality, that's the only way you're going to get healed. And so healing, it, it means everything to me. And even with me being a married man, there are things that I still have to heal from and things yeah. that I have to, because that was one of the things that one of the reasons why it took me so long to, to marry my yeah. wife is because of my wounded self. Yep. And because I was so wounded, I had this mentality. Nope. I'm gonna drop you before you drop me. Yeah. Because all my life I've been dropped. And yeah. so I broke my wife's heart three times yeah. before I finally was like, okay, let me just, let me just be honest with this woman and tell her what's really going on with me. And then from there, like, I, I still find myself being afraid because it's like, in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, when, when is she going to drop me? Like, it, it always happens. Go ahead and prepare yourself. But my counselor has been counseling me and telling me, you know, I cannot self-sabotage. I have to be able to allow my wife to be my wife. I have to be able to talk to her about my issues and about the things that are bothering me because she is my partner. And so um, those things help heal because you cannot heal something if you don't reveal it. And so healing means everything. Yeah. Reveal to heal. 
feel like yep. I can put that on a t-shirt. That That's amazing. And you mentioned like wounds and scars and bleeding and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I think to me, um, healing means that there's a scar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like I busted my head open when I was a little kid um, because yeah. I, shocker, I used to run around and act a fool and, um, you know, ended up having to get stitches and the stitches got broken. It was just like whole thing. But when I look at this, I'm like, it's, it's like a physical reminder that bad things can happen to me and I'll heal. And I joke right. with my, with my former students, I used to be like, yeah, man, that's my third eye. I can see you even deeper with this <laughs> other eyeball I got right here. You can't even see it, but, but in a real way, those, those scars, um, are to be treasured, right? Yeah. Because it's proof that there's life after, after hurt. And, yep. um, and I think, you know, I've, I've, I've got wounds that I need to heal from. I haven't taken proper care of them. Um, you know, but, you know, I say this really honestly, that I'm looking forward to the scars, you know, yep. looking forward to what they look like. It, it makes sense. Um, makes sense because when you look at the scar, it lets you know that you survived it. Um, so it makes, it makes plenty of sense. And you're not the only one who has things to heal from. There are still things that I have to heal from. That's right. That's um, right. so it, it's an ongoing process, but we have to be able to accept everything that comes with it. And to me, this is the most important takeaway from this conversation tonight is that, you know, even when you look at other people, like when I look at someone like you and I'm like, man, that dude had, has it figured out like what, man, I got, I got to just learn his wisdom. And the wisdom is you just keep going, you keep learning, you keep healing and that it's a process. You're never fully, fully finished with it because those things will always be a part of your identity. Um, but the continuation of healing is what's so important. So thank you for that. Um, all right. So we're going to, we're going to end this on a slightly lighter note over here on Habitually Disruptive, we like to talk a little bit about something that we call our top five anything. Um, I could actually do my top five jobs that I currently have. Oh, really? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. No, because then I'll have to say that there's one that I don't like and I don't, I don't want to be like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so top five anything. Anthony, I understand you've done a little bit of preparation, so I'm going to give you a little bit of ground rules on how this goes. Uh, this is something that Kevin Adams and I have codified in the Two Dope Nation, is that we believe in top fives, but we also don't believe in hierarchies. We think hierarchies are vestiges of settler, colonial, westernist, white supremacist thought. Um, only white supremacy would rank things and say one thing is better than another. And so we decolonize the notion of a top five if that's what people want to do. Um, we also decolonize the notion that it has to be five. Our mutual uh, friend, Eric Hale, the, uh, the meat tenderizer to my saute, my marinade. Uh, Eric did not care that it's the top five because he had three-way ties for third and four-way ties for fifth. And then he said, but, but, dude, if it's a top 10, here's what I include. And if it was a top 15, and we had to cut off that episode. But we say that, we say that this is the Eric Hale rule that really anything goes. Um, and so Anthony, tell us what your top five is. So I wrote down some names of some artists, um, that I, that speak to me and they have different messages, um, that pertain to my life. So, um, I'm going to say that I'm not even going to put them in order if that's okay. You can, if you want, but whatever's comfortable. 
So one of them is Puff Daddy, Sean Puffy Combs. Yes. And, and the reason why I chose him is because almost everything that I see him on, like the voice or he's, he's always willing to help somebody to get to their next level. And so in life, that is what life is about to pay it for, to help someone to grow to where they need to be. So that's like, and I, is it, is it because of his verse on more money, more problems? <laughs> that's some wisdom in that. <laughs> yeah. And, and actuality is not, I just have been watching him lately on yeah. how he pushes people to be their best selves. And yeah. so I admire them. And he's been through things like he's not lived a perfect life. He's not lived right. a life without error, without mistake, without, without poor judgments and who he associates. Right. And who has. Um, Exactly. And he's come to this place where he's dropping some wisdom. All right. Don't sleep on Puffy, yo. <laughs> um, the next one will, will actually be um, Fantasia. And Fantasia I, Barino. Yeah. And I, and I say Fantasia is because, number one, she was from North Carolina, which is close to where I live. That's right. And the second the second reason is because... Um, they had closed the auditions, but some kind of way she got in that building, like a, I believe a security guard let her in, <laughs> but her determination. So the care, that characteristic that she had was, and she ended up going in there and singing and winning. And now she's yeah. a, a world renowned artist. Like, oh, I, I remember her. She lit up the stage and I did not know that story about her though that, yeah. that she hadn't made it to the audition but charmed her way onto the stage which seems very Anthony Swan to me like I feel like if feel like if Anthony missed an audition and he just went up he just started talking flashes that smile they'd be like man come on <laughs> yeah yeah I got you so that's one okay um another one I'm gonna say Michael Jackson Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna say him because his songs speak to me like the man in the mirror. The lyrics to his songs speak to me. Like it causes me to think about when I look in the mirror, you know, I I'm gonna make a change for once in my life. And so his the lyrics of his songs speak to me, not because he's the king of pop or it's just they have meaning, like they're they're not just words on the paper. he wants you to think about your life. He wants That's you to look in the mirror and do some reflections. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's one. That's number three, I believe. So far, so good. <laughs> Let's see. So I'm going to mix it up here. Jasmine Sullivan. Okay. I love Jasmine Sullivan because she started off on Apollo 13. Yeah. Steve Harvey and she was only <laughs> 11 years old Man. and when you go back and you can YouTube it but when you go back and look at that episode and look where she is now like you'll yep. be like wait what like yeah. she looked like a total nerd yeah like people were like laughing at her and but when she opened her mouth it was powerful and so that platinum, you know and platinum <laughs> yeah and people people have done me the same way like i was a total nerd but when i opened my mouth it was like yo you got some wisdom like <laughs> we, we can glean from you like i was a total nerd in high school but the popular kids did not allow anybody to bother me because they knew 
that if they needed help with their academics, <laughs> they could always yes. come to me. Yes. And so I, I remember when somebody was ready to roll up on me and the popular kids came right beside me and was like, no, nah, you ain't going to mess with anything. Like, no, nah, I don't know what you're coming to do. But knowing that I may be quiet, but when I open my mouth, I'm Your powerful. own superpower, your own superpower. See, people yep. wouldn't roll up on me because I was crazy. Like, <laughs> oh, that's even now. That's even now. <laughs> that's so that's cool. even now. People are like, you don't know what he's gonna do. I love that. So, Jasmine Sullivan, I love that that addition. Um, and I would have to say, I'm gonna mix it up. Man, I got some other ones on here. And um, you can always do honorable mention if you don't want to leave names unspoken. Like, okay, we're we're free I, here in the Two Dope Nation. <laughs> I'm gonna say. Leandria Johnson she's actually a gospel artist but she went to audition on Sunday's Best and she was actually homeless and she didn't have anything she had two trash bags and when she opened up her mouth once again it was powerful and even one of the judges ended up saying you know she said I'm gonna tell my secret she said when you came out on this stage I didn't write your number down because you didn't look winnish. She said, but I have to retract because you are powerful. Wow. And she, and she ended up winning. Now she's a world renowned gospel artist after being homeless and evicted and only having two trash bags. She walked on the stage and now she is bad. Yeah. Bad. My last one would be Kurt Franklin. Oh, Kirk Franklin, Franklin. yes. (laughs) He has rescinded generations after generations with just his music. Like he he went against the grain of what people thought was he did. Do you want a revolution? Right. right. (laughs) Went against that grain. And that's what we have to do now in our lives. Like we have to go against the grain in order to move the needle, in order to show people who we really are, so that they'll have. When we open it up our mouths, we'll be powerful. And so sometimes we have to go against what society dictate to us what we can do or what we can be. We have to go against that to let them know, no, I am I am a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. Um, and so those are my people. Yo, I love it. And you are a force to be reckoned with. It's it's so interesting to hear these names from you because I can see it all embodied in you. Like I see you. Um, tapping all of those different sort of those different pieces of yourself that are activated in you in certain moments. Like, like I've definitely seen the wisdom of, of, uh, of Sean Puffy Combs. I've definitely seen the joy of Fantasia, the reflection of, um, of Michael Jackson, um, like that, that, that furious joy um, that I see in the music of, of Kirk Franklin. Like that's, it's so on brand, man. I feel like I just, it's just like, well, of course, <laughs> of course. And, you know, hopefully they discover you and, and you'll make it onto their top five, because I think uh, to know you is to love you, brother. And, um, and I, I am just incredibly grateful to not only have had you on the show, but to be able to count you as my friend. Listen, I, I feel the same way about you. I, you have actually pushed me to grow. Number one, as a man, number two, as a professional, 
you have caused me to think outside of the box. You've caused me to be challenged with, I'm thinking a certain way. It's like, well, no, let's look at it this way. Like, <laughs> like you can't always stay in your, your mindset or of your thinking. You do have to be challenged and you have pushed me to grow as an educator. There are times when I'm in a room and stuff is happening and, um, or people are saying things and the old me used to be like, Nope, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to say that. But I can hear you in my ear like, uh-uh, no, no. And I find myself doing that like, no, that's not, nope, nope. I'm going to speak I've up. Had to, I've had to like balance my anger because I'm like, I can either be mad right now or even matter that I didn't say anything. <laughs> so which anger yeah. am I going to choose? <laughs> yeah. I can so be mad you, at them or mad at myself. <laughs> I, I, you have really, you and the other crew, Y'all have really caused me to to grow in the aspect of knowing that I can speak up and still yet be professional, but still yet be be received as well as respected for my professionalism and my way of thinking. And I have caused others to think outside the box as a result of that. That's beautiful. And if I'm being honest, I probably, I lost my box years ago. I have no idea what it is. That's, that's, oh, why, I know. that's why, that's why I can't do anything except outside the box. Cause I don't even know where the box is. Oh, <laughs> no, I, but I appreciate that. It means a lot because I think like it definitely, you move a room when you speak and, um, and you move people to act and you move people to joy. And, um, it's, it's been an, it's been a privilege to bear witness to that. Um, so, uh, here, there we have it being habitually disruptive uh, with my guy, Anthony Swan. Um, do you do you have socials that you want to share? People, place where people can follow you and hear your ideas? Yes. So on Twitter, I'm um, at 2021 V-A-T-O-T-Y. And I believe it's the same thing on Instagram. All right. Check him out because there's some really good stuff. Anthony's so generous with his stories and his stories will, will get you deep. And so definitely get in community with this dude. Definitely retweet him, reply to him. He will be there for community. So, folks, uh, that's a wrap on episode 22 of Habitually Disruptive with Gerardo Munoz. Thank you for tuning in, tuning in and stay disrupting, y'all.